Our scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 25 and extending through verse 32. This is God's Word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I mean, you may be seated. Father, it is through Your Word and by Your Word that You speak to us. Would You meet us here in this place, in this moment, and by Your Spirit, open up the truth and the beauty and the reality of Your Word, the Word made flesh, the Word made incarnate, the One who dwells in our midst, the One before whom we live, the One who is lovely, beautiful, and true. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're looking at Ephesians again, obviously, in the same passage that was before you last week, taking another slice of this particular passage. But just as a reminder, if you've you've joined us since we began this series in Ephesians, it's important to recognize where this lands. Chapter 4 that we're in begins with a verse that says, live worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Uh, Live a life that matches the glory and the splendor and the wonder of God's design and plans of redemption. That's what the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about. And in chapter 4, it's a therefore. Live in light of that. Well, we've been in this passage now verses 25 to 32, sitting in that, taking a slice uh, of that longer, fuller paragraph each week here now, coming to the end of this paragraph today. But in this paragraph that concludes today, what we're hearing again and again is that your character needs to change. To live a life that matches, that comes up to the level of the glory of your call in Christ, My character, your character needs to change. That's a process that the the Apostle Paul talks about and invites us into. A process of change. Real change can occur. Real change does occur. So be of good heart and courage by, by Paul's continued insistence upon the fact that character can change. And he's going to show us how. Once again, in this passage today, last week we looked at verse 30 right above verse 31. And in verse 30, we were reminded that the call includes to live a life in such a way that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
that that we don't live in such a way to damage the relationship with the one who abides and resides within us. The person of the Holy Spirit. That was last week. Here we come to another explicit mandate, direction for our lives that one commentator described verses 31 and 32 as a practical exposition of what we are to avoid if we are anxious not to grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells within. So last week, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This week, here's one more way for you to walk in that direction, to enhance the relationship with the one who loves you, the one who lives within you. How do we then live? To borrow a phrase. And what we're going to see, we're going to see an occasion in these two last verses, 31 and 32, when angry people become tenderhearted. That's what these last two verses are about. When angry people become tenderhearted, how does that happen? It might be the question that you have about your own self if you recognize that, yeah, there's, there are depths and degrees of anger that, that mark my life that I cannot change. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the Spirit of God invite us today down a path that addresses that kind of radical change. Radical from the root. Radical change. When angry people become tenderhearted. Uh, It's the same formula, so this sermon very naturally falls into, yes, three parts. Uh, There's what we are to eliminate, that's verse 31. Verse 32, what we are to cultivate, and the end of 32 suggests the remedy or the way for that to occur. What we're to eliminate, what we're to cultivate, and how that kind of change occurs. Uh, One man, uh, Ralph Davis, writes about the Old Testament very well. Uh, In writing about an Old Testament narrative, uh, Ralph Davis wrote this, Life would be pretty drab and listless without emotions and feelings. Never getting high blood pressure over anything could be a sign one has health or lacks vitality. (laughs) Do you hear what he's saying? If you never get upset about something, it might be that you're very, very healthy. It might just be a sign of life because we're always reacting to something. And everybody in here knows a little bit and maybe a lot about anger. Uh, That's where this starts. Emotions and feelings have a way of running off course. That's what we're trying to address here. They hijack our hearts and take us places that we didn't intend to do and damage relationships that we didn't consider. Our emotions can run away with us. Our emotions can take us someplace. And sometimes it's because something happened. It's sometimes it's just because of the nature of how we are wired. <clears throat> Dostoevsky wrote about this, wrote about the, uh, an, the eternal nagging of an old woman who was apparently not wicked, but it had become a most insufferable crank from sheer idleness. <laughs> Did you hear that? Not wicked, but became an insufferable crank from sheer idleness. 
just sitting where we are, where does our heart go? Where, does our, where, does, where do our affections go? And he's pointing to a, uh, an example of what happens even in sheer idleness becoming an insufferable crank. The human heart, you see, left unattended. Your heart, my heart, left unattended can drag you off to places you did not intend to go. That's what Paul has in mind when he starts down this list. Uh, <clears throat> when, we're, when, we, when we get to verse 31, we're, we're reading things and there's a lot of words jammed together there. It's kind of like a, it looks like a th- th- thesaurus. You remember the thesaurus that got you through college? There you're, you're looking for, I don't want to use that word. Here's a, is there a better word for, to say what I'm trying to say? That's not what he's doing here. These sound like synonyms. They're not synonyms. They're, they're specific attributes and attitudes and actions <clears throat> before us. And I want to just, if you'll bear with me, to walk through to try to unpack these six words that he, that he starts out and says, this is the fruit that needs to go. No, sorry, these are, the, these are the thorns that need to go. This is what marks my life and yours that needs to be displaced and replaced with something else. So bear with me as we as we walk through the thesaurus of sorts. All bitterness. Bitterness. Uh, that's, that's, if there were a, an, a thesaurus or a synonym for that, it might be sourness. Uh, you know uh, the person or you know the, the place where um, there's a persistent sourness of life, describes a life that is sour. And you've, you've seen that person, you've, you've encountered that person, maybe at times you've been that person. Uh, but this is the person who never, see, never sees good in things, never sees good in people, uh, quick to find fault and defect and deficiency in something and everything. Bitterness expresses how anger if it's a subset of anger, if it's a quality of anger, if anger is at the root of it, bitterness expresses how anger can last a long, long time. Maybe it's anger at someone. Maybe it's anger at God. But there's, an inter- there's a bitterness that can seep in and mark my life and yours. People recycle old hurts nurse grievances and grudges and never get over it. And somehow convince themselves that that's an okay place to be. Many feel they have a good cause to be bitter. They've been dealt hard blows. They've been treated unfairly. And yes, there are hard blows and unfairness. But in doing so, in in absorbing this and being marked and living in a, in a place of bitterness, making themselves miserable all the while. Nursing grievances, whether real or imaginary. Bitterness. Put away all bitterness. Put away all wrath. What's that? Well, Wrath, we need to understand wrath as a a violent excitement or agitation of mind, a kind of boiling over, 
That's what, that's what wrath is. Wrath is, doesn't simmer. Wrath boils. You know when you put water on, you're waiting for the water to heat up on the stove, it goes in the bottom of the pan, and, and the first indication that there's something happening is that eventually, if the temperature's high enough and you wait long enough, steam begins to rise. It's not boiling. It's, it's simmering. It's, it's not yet boiled over. But if you walk away from the stove and haven't set a timer, you've come back to a pot that has boiled over. That's wrath. That's rage. It's an anger that overflows. And then you're wiping it up with whatever is near at hand to wipe up what's boiled over. Hopefully it's just water. But sometimes it's a bigger mess. But there's a sullen, sudden hostility or brawling that goes with wrath. Anger, though, <clears throat> that steam that has begun to come up from the, from the, um, the pot is a more settled state of mind and condition. You can be angry and it not show, right? I mean, we're pretty good about that. I don't mean you, I mean generically. Maybe you may be really good at it, but, <clears throat> but generally we're pretty good at being angry and holding it in so that it's not showing so much. So that's a lot of work for some of us, but we can do that. At its core, <clears throat> anger says, I'm against that. And I take an active stance against something that I assess is important and wrong. Those are words from David Paulison, who's a Christian counselor, served for years at Westminster Seminary's counseling ministry. At core, anger says, I'm against that. It's an active stance against something that we assess is important and wrong. If it's not important, we, we're, we tend to let it go. If it's not wrong, we, we don't get angry. But where is that sense of judgment coming from or assessment coming from? Sometimes it's my preferences. Sometimes it's my comfort. Sometimes it's my wishes. Sometimes it's God's word. There is a place for a righteous kind of anger. And, and we talked about that a few weeks ago in verse 26 above, I believe, <clears throat> where we're told to be angry but do not sin. There is a place for a righteous anger. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's talking about the anger that doesn't belong, the anger that destroys, the anger that is punitive, the anger that is self-righteous. Again, Pallison says, in real life, anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and criticizes classmates. It divides churches, turns friendship into enemy, and erupts in road rage. It's the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. The fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. It's the basic DNA of complaining, brooding, irritability, and bickering. Has he hit home yet? There, there's an anger that, that marks our lives that, we're not, that we don't call it that. 
And that's at the heart of this collection of words that he's cautioning us about that say that needs to go. He puts it this way, some people hit the roof and get over it. Others go into their shell. Some go on the rampage for days, muttering, gossiping, rehearsing, and exaggerating. Others raise their voices. Some get quiet, fearful, and discouraged. Others pretend nothing happened. Some don't recognize that they're bothered and can't acknowledge anger even to themselves. Others take it out on an innocent party or with a hard workout. Some give plenty of signals that they are angry. Others make guerrilla strikes out of nowhere. Some use anger to intimidate and control people. Others use anger to sulk and avoid people. I think he got us all. It's not a matter of temperament, you see. It's a matter of recognizing that there are things below the surface that will boil over if left unattended, that will explode in words. And that's what he deals with next. Uh, Words that he calls clamor. Those are shouting matches, a kind of brawling. There's a violence that goes with clamor. There's slander. Those are false accusations, saying things that are harmful to people on purpose behind their back. And then he caps it off with, along with all malice, probably referring to all of the features just listed. That's, that's, a, that's a wicked desire with respect to others, a determination to harm. Those are, those are hard words. Those are things that we'd rather avoid, uh, not look at and recognize. But Paul takes us there and says, I want you to pay attention to the things that will mark your life if left unattended. And those things are there. There's a scene uh, in the first Indiana Jones movie that you'll remember, no doubt, if you've seen it at all. Raiders of the Lost Ark, where, where our hero is on his way in pursuit of the ark, and before he gets to the ark, he, he descends on a robe down into a pit. And as he hits the floor, the light comes on, and he's surrounded. It's, it's, a, it's a nest, a brood of vipers. And as startling as that scene is, Paul wants this to startle us. To be able to see that there are things that mark my life and yours, like anger and bitterness and wrath, that I need to look in the square in the eye and to say that needs to go for something else to, to, to mark my life. Those things need to go. And they won't go until I first recognize the depth and the reality. We would do well to consider that what Paul is doing here is he's writing to us. He's writing to me. He's writing to you. There is bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger that seep up. And we may call them something else. But I need to pay attention to the operations of my own heart to know what I'm fearful of because anger lives next door to fear. What am I so fearful of? What is it that happens around me or in the lives of others that prompt those things in me? What am I afraid of? Those are the things that need to go. 
And in verse 32, we, at the beginning, we see what, need to, what we need to cultivate. And there we find three more words. It's just the, the opposite of anger and clamor and wrath and bitterness. He says here that in verse 32 that, that we are to cultivate three Christ-like attitudes and expressions. And I want to try to unpack these for our sake today. The first one, he says, be kind. And by the way, that could, will, could well be and maybe better translated, become kind. The word that's translated be kind can, and for our purposes today, let's consider it as become kind. Because I think that's what Paul is after here. Become kind. It suggests that there's, there is a process of cultivation. There's time and attention that needs to go to seeing these things bear fruit in my life and yours. It's not enough to pull up the weeds. How we even do that, we'll get to in a moment. But it's not enough to pull up the weeds. But what is it that we cultivate? Uh, to, we are to become kind. So let me unpack these three words uh, one at a time as well. We're to become kind. That is, we are to be useful and helpful to others. It's not a synonym for nice. I mean, that's kind of how we treat it sometimes. She's so kind. She's so nice. Well, you don't see nice as a biblical category at all, frankly. But we do see kindness again and again. It's to be useful and helpful to others. That's what the Bible means by kind, what Paul intends. We're to be benevolent toward others. That kind of kindness. I guess it could be random acts of kindness. You know, we hear about that. We read about it. Uh, there's, there's a marketing campaign uh, to, to, to display and to show random acts of kindness. It started on bumper stickers. There's now a random acts of kindness foundation. I guess they print the bumper stickers. I don't know. But they have a saying, and the saying is this, and their motto and their charge is make kindness the norm. And they will tell you why you should be kind. What they don't and aren't able to do is to tell you how. Oh, they will make suggestions. But how are we to become kind? How do we go from a people whose lives are marked by bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and anger and malice to a people who are kind or a person who is kind. Kindness shows up and kindness makes a difference. William Wordsworth in a poem, Tintern Abbey, writes this, that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love. The best part of a good man's life. Little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love. Augustine, in his own biography, wrote about the impact of Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan in the 4th century. And, and Ambrose was an exquisite teacher, theological uh, 
precision and clarity and poise, a remarkable gifted teacher. But Augustine said it wasn't merely his teaching. In fact, it wasn't principally in first his teaching. It was his kindness that pierced Augustine's life and opened him up to the reality and the possibility of the gospel. Kindness has an impact. And so Paul says, become kind. To live a life that matches the calling that you've received, Christian, become kind. And while he says, be kind, and then he goes on with two more words, we are to understand that what he means by that is we are to become kind, and then we are to become tenderhearted. Not necessarily one before the other. These things happen together. But we are to become, as we are to become kind, we are to become tenderhearted. That is compassionate. That word means an attitude of generosity and sympathy. At our <clears throat> generosity and sympathy to people who have fallen and failed. Do you know people who have fallen and failed? What is your heart toward them? Maybe they have failed you. What is your heart toward them? Paul says, become kind, become tender-hearted. That's the opposite, by the way of what he's described in chapter 3 as the Gentiles who were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in, in them due to the hardness of their heart. So there's hardness of the heart that once described us. And now there's a tenderness of heart, a softening. How do you go from hard-hearted to tender-hearted? Paul's about to tell us. And what he's not going to tell us is to get busy, get tough with yourself, change yourself, stop it. He doesn't use those categories. What is he saying? We'll get to that in a moment. But what he is not saying is to take out the tenderizing mallet and start pounding your heart like you do a piece of meat to soften it, to make it better. <laughs> That's one of the ways that we tend to think others should work on themselves. Stop it. Get busy. Change what you're doing. How do you do that? It's not something that you can take a tenderizer and tenderize your own heart. Unless it's what Paul puts in your hands in this passage. We become kind. We become tenderhearted. We become forgiving. That is, acting in grace toward another, literally. We act in grace toward another when we recognize what God has done with us. That's how you become forgiving. That's how you become kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. This is how Tim Keller puts it. We name, to be forgiving, we name the trespass truthfully, something done to us as wrong rather than excusing it. 
We don't simply excuse it. We call it wrong, whatever the wrong was or is. And here's the hard part. We release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt rather than seeking revenge. The first one is we name the truth as wrong rather than excusing it. Here, we release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt rather than seeking revenge or holding a grudge or being resentful or growing bitter. We release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt. And then we aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship for good, if that's possible. That's a two-way street. That's another sermon. <laughs> but those are, those are the elements of forgiveness. And without any one of them, it's something short of forgiveness. I need to be in a posture to be reconciled. I need to be willing to be reconciled. I need to be willing to make the first move. We are to be, become forgiving of one another and the only way we can approach that, the only way we can approximate that, the only way we can move toward it is to recognize that human forgiveness must be based on divine forgiveness. Take a look later. Jot this down and look at Psalm 103. I think it's in your taking the message home. And there we see, we need to pay close attention about how God's forgiveness unfolds. What we read in verse 8 of Psalm 103 is, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who He is. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. That's who He is. And then what does He do with us? Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Forgiveness, says Pallison, <clears throat> is a conscious choice formed through knowing God's mercy to you. Forgiveness of others is a conscious choice of knowing God's mercy to you. It clearly recognizes that what happened was wrong. It makes no excuses for what happened and then lets it go. The principle here is you cannot be kind and tender-hearted and at the same time unforgiving. Well, that's two portraits before us, one fairly ugly, one pretty lovely. How does that kind of change occur? And as I said, it's not the meat tenderizer, unless it's something that else that, that God puts in your hands. You see, knowing what's wrong and knowing what's right, knowing what to avoid and what to do is never enough. It is never enough. That doesn't keep us from trying to live that way or imposing it on others, but it's never enough. Putting the, putting the list of rules on the cabin wall doesn't keep the, ca the, the campers from violating. <laughs> Trust me, I learned that one many years ago. Knowing what to do doesn't prevent and doesn't get us where we need to go. 
So how does this change occur? There, there are two clues in, this, in these two verses about what this change looks like and how it occurs. The first one is in verse 31. If you would look at it closer than we have so far. It doesn't read put away, anger, clamor, bitterness. What does it say? Have these be put away. Literally, it means these things be taken away from you. You see, left to ourselves, we remain ourselves. <laughs> left to ourselves, we remain ourselves. But God in His gracious mercy not only shows us what's, what to avoid, to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit, He also shows us what our life is to look like and then he jumps in with us. The dead leaves of winter on the trees in my yard and yours are there until new life pushes them off the limb. They're dead and they're there until something begins to push through to make room for itself. New qualities develop like kind, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Those qualities develop and the others simply have to go. That's how they go when new qualities develop. When Paul says, let these things be taken away from you, he has something in mind, and I think it's the person that he's just described in verse 30. That Holy Spirit that we are not to grieve is poised with power to work this change in you. That's what he says in Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you remember this? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How does any change occur in me? Much less just these six words. How does any change occur? It's by the Spirit at work in me, producing His fruit, Galatians 5. And so how does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit do that work in us? What is the instrument with which I appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. How does it work? What is, what is required for the Holy Spirit to do that kind of work in me? Are you curious? Paul answers the question. He actually answers it in Galatians. And you can look at this later, Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you, Paul writes, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you hear the contrast? Did you receive the Spirit by what you did or by what you believed? It's hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Paul writes to the Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you able to change yourself? Left to ourselves, we are ourselves. But the Holy Spirit that we are not to grieve is poised with power to do this very work in you. That hard work. That remarkable work. That, can we call it, supernatural work. That's what's required. 
It's a supernatural work, and it's not yours. It's by faith, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, Paul writes. So I'm not trying to conquer my bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice by myself. I'm looking to the Holy Spirit to bear His fruit in my life. I'm looking to Him. What am I doing as I look to Him? I'm doing what I did to receive Him in the first place, Galatians 3, believing, trusting. I'm believing Him. What must I believe to see the Holy Spirit conquer bitterness, anger, malice in my heart and, and make me tenderhearted and kind? What do I need to believe? And Paul tells us, this is what he puts in your hand. It's not a mallet. It's not a whip. It's not a set of rules. It's the grand and glorious truth at the end of verse 32. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. That's what Paul is, or Jesus is up to in, in, the, in the parable in Matthew 18. He's wanting the characters in the parable, read it later, Matthew 18. He's wanting them to see the magnitude of our debt that has been absorbed by Christ. And who are we then to, to reek out and squeeze out something much, much less from others? The magnitude, when I see, when I remember and I recognize the magnitude of my debt, the mountain, that Mount Everest of my sin has been absorbed by Christ. That enables me to absorb something that by comparison, painful though it may be, does not compare. That's Matthew 18. The reality is most people in this world and maybe the church think very lightly of the forgiveness of sins. We talk about it a lot. Do we talk about it so much that we begin to think lightly of the forgiveness of sin? Do we, do we hear about the fact that God forgives our sins and yawn? Herman Bovink is a theologian who, who wrote this, we are affected by things which ought not to affect us and let other things pass which ought to grieve us sorely. But sin and forgiveness both take on weightier content when they are respectively committed against God and forgiven by Him. Do you hear what he's saying? When we recognize the magnitude, these are not character flaws, this is cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. You, you can't commit cosmic treason and let it be forgiven and yawn. Instead, there's only one response to that. Whether it's literal or figurative, we drop to our knees. We, see, we, we see, soak ourselves in the, in the fullness of God's lavish love for us. That's how Paul put it in chapter 1. 
In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. It's unending. His forgiveness of you is unending. It's not partial. It's full. It's total. There is nothing that you have or will do if you are in Christ that's not covered by His blood. Do not yawn. Do not yawn. But instead be changed. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament is filled with this recurring picture of the high priest who would go in to the Holy of Holies once a year and on a, on a daily routine would, would present sacrifices for sin offerings. A daily recurring reminder of the need for forgiveness. And that great high priest who once a year went into the Holy of Holies is superseded. He is replaced by the true great high priest that we read about in Hebrews, the mediator between God and all of and humanity, where we read in Hebrews 10 with, that when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. He sat down. A single sacrifice for all time. He sat down because that work was done. And we read two verses later, by a single offering, He has perfected those who are being sanctified. By a single offering for all time, He has sat down and by that single offering has perfected those who are being sanctified. Or might we say, those who are becoming kind. Those who are becoming tender-hearted. Those who are becoming forgiven, giving, because in Christ we've been treated just that way. I've, I've quoted Pallison a couple times. Here's one more. We need help. We need forgiveness. We need both vision and strength to change. We need a Savior. On scene, active, committed, practical, personal, to get mixed up in our troubles. And that is what we have. The difficulty that you have in being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, that trouble... We have a Savior that gets mixed up on the scene, active, committed, practical, personal, to come alongside you, to help you see the depth, the endlessness of His forever love for you. And it puts the offenses that we're called to deal with, whether it's from one another or others outside, in relief, in contrast. Painful those they may be, as wrong as they may, calling it what it is, but seeing His love for us enables us to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the cost because a greater cost has been absorbed for you. Your debt. 
C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, in us. That's the gospel. That's how change occurs. And the way my heart and yours change is when we rehearse and remember and recite and come again to the grand glorious truth that God has forgiven us. And that makes a people who are becoming kind, who are becoming tenderhearted, and are becoming forgiving by His Spirit as we believe and remember and believe and remember that our sins have been forgiven. Thanks be to God. Father, thank You for that truth, for the unending, finished work of Christ that has completed that by one sacrifice He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That He by one sacrifice cleanses us from our sin and has sat down because His work is done on our behalf. And we look forward to that day when... <clears throat> when that work will be completed, that we will see Him as He is and we will be like Him. Lord, hurry that day. And until, give us, until then, give us the grace and the love, the steadfastness to be a people whose lives begin to resemble the glory of Your call upon our lives as Your Spirit does that work to shape us into His image for His glory. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.